passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As for the rest of us, we will be in 1 Samuel uh, again this morning. Um, we have a running joke in um, our, our staff meetings that, um, surprisingly, Spencer is a couple of weeks behind um, the Spirit Lake campus going through 1 Samuel, and uh, that was only exacerbated over the last couple of weeks. So we're going back into 1 Samuel, and uh, because it's been a few weeks, um, I want to just uh, take a moment to remind you of where we've been so far in this book, 1 Samuel is a book that is all about our need for a king. That's how the book starts. It starts with this picture of what our life is like without a king, and maybe even more specifically than that, is what life is like without the true king. And, and for the last several weeks as we've been looking through first seven chapters of First Samuel, we've seen what life is like for the people of Israel without a king. They're lacking this godly king who's going to lead them to follow the king of glory, to follow God himself. And because of that, they quickly chase after all of these other gods, and, and they devolve into immorality and corruption. And, and really, the people of Israel are a shell of what God has desired for them. And that's what 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7 are about. Before the days of the kings, Israel is, is rudderless. Their leaders are corrupt. The people of Israel are conquered and oppressed by their enemies. The, the ark, the very presence of God among his people is stolen from them. And yet 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7 also show us that God is still at work. That God is still at work proving His glory to the surrounding nations. God is at work proving His glory to the people of Israel even after they have forgotten Him. God is still at work. He's raised up this faithful leader, Samuel. For 20 years, Samuel is proclaiming this message of, of repentance, of returning to the Lord, of coming back to God. And that's what we saw last week, or a couple of weeks ago in 1 Samuel chapter 7. This morning, as we turn our, our focus to, to chapter 8, we're actually beginning the second part of the book of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7 are the first part of 1 Samuel. They're all about the rise of Samuel, the last judge. That's part 1. Now we're turning our attention to part 2, chapters 8 through 15. Here we're going to see the rise of Saul, the people's king. And as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to soon notice that for a book that's all about the importance of a king, chapter 8 does not speak highly of kings. It's not a positive picture of kings that is seen here in chapter 8. And the key to understanding what is happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is to understand the difference between God's plan for a king and what the people of Israel desire from a king. So, what is God's plan for a king, and what do the people of Israel actually want from a king? And so, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to consider these two different questions 
But first, we're going to work our way briefly through this text and just kind of help us to understand it. Um, would you pray with me as we approach God's Word? Father, as, as we um, come to you and to your Word this morning, we thank you that you have given us timeless truths in your Word. Um, what a gift it is to have the words of, of a sovereign king, words that are preserved for us. And Lord, it's, it's such a great gift that not only are these words preserved, but they're also applicable for us today. So God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would prepare our hearts not only to hear the message of your word, but also to respond to the message of your word. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's uh, just start with a brief overview here, starting in verse 1. Verses 1 through 3 say this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Decades have passed since the end of chapter 7, where we saw that in chapter 7, Samuel leads the people of Israel in what we called a covenant renewal ceremony. They, they all gather together at Mizpah and say, we want to follow the Lord, we're going to return to the Lord, we're going to serve Him only. And for the first time in generations, because of that moment, the people of Israel finally have peace from their enemies. At long last, they're living in right relationship with God. They're living in right relationship with one another. And this lasts for a long time. And yet, as we get to chapter 8, Samuel is now at the end of his life. And we see that things have started to decline. And maybe surprisingly for us, the, the decline starts with the person of Samuel. He makes an unprecedented move, something that's never been done before in Israel's history. He takes his sons and he appoints them as judges. To this point in Israel's history, no one has ever appointed a judge or a leader for Israel except for God himself. And here's Samuel and he's seen what things are like without a good, godly leader, and he says, I'm about to, to die. I don't know when that's going to happen, and so we need someone to lead the people of Israel, and so I'm going to take my sons, and I'm going to have them prepare to lead the people of Israel. And so he sends them off to Beersheba. Beersheba is this at the time, this small town in the southern part of the nation of Israel. He wants them to cut their teeth, get to know what it is like to be a judge. And, and so he sends them down there to serve as judges. But unfortunately, Samuel's sons don't have all that much in common with Samuel. They have more in common with Eli's sons, and they take advantage of their positions of power. They see their role as judges not as a responsibility to serve others, to serve God, but instead as a way to make a quick buck. And even though it's happening all the way down south in this backwater town, word reaches the elders, the leaders of the nation of Israel, and they confront Samuel, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. 
And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now give credit where credit's due. The, the elders here, they, they start off right. They acknowledge the wickedness of Samuel's sons, and they remember what life was like under Eli and under his sons. They want nothing to do with that. So they, they're right in identifying the problem, and yet their solution here is not much better than that of Samuel's. Now, we'll get to, a, a, we'll get to the significance of, of why they want a king later, but I just want you to consider, even on the surface, what they're asking for here. A hereditary judgeship, which is Samuel's plan. This sons will become the, the future judges, and then it'll just continue to pass on from generation to generation in one family as the leaders of Israel. So a hereditary judgeship is not all that different than a hereditary kingship. So the people of Israel recognize that the problem with Samuel's plan is that we can't guarantee that they're actually godly leaders. So their solution is to turn to a a system where they cannot guarantee the future of godly leaders. They exchange a hereditary judgeship with all of its problems for a hereditary kingship. And Samuel doesn't take too kindly to this idea. He sees it as a rejection of himself, and so he cries out to God. Pick up in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them that the ways of the kings who will reign over them. So again, Samuel takes the, the request from the elders here, he takes it personally, but God says, hey, you know what, this is actually just par for the course with Israel. This is the way that they act. What's more, they're not so much rejecting you, Samuel, as they are rejecting me. But God is in the business of taking people's evil motives and using them for good, and he's going to do the exact same thing here. And so he says to Samuel, go ahead and listen to them. Go ahead and appoint a king like the people want. But before you do that, I want you to warn them of what they're getting themselves into. So that when all of these bad things start happening to them because of their desire for a king, they can't say, well, we had no idea. So Samuel, before you give them a king, tell them what this king like the nations will be like. And that's what Samuel does. He says this, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and above your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And we don't have to go through this in depth. We can just look at, at world history and see that Samuel and his warning are absolutely correct. Actually, starting with the first king, Saul, and then increasingly with David, and then even more so with David's son, Solomon, we see these things come to pass. Notice how Samuel starts in verse 11. He says, these will be the ways of the king. He's saying, if you really want a king like the nations, then just so you know, this is what those kings operate like. The operative word in this passage is the word take. Did you hear the repetition as we read through the ESV? It's mentioned six times in the ESV. If you have a king like the nations, if you replace the Lord's judges with this autocratic king who has the sole authority in the land that answers to nobody, nothing is off limits for him. He will take whatever he wants, whether that is your children or your land or your money or your crops or your livestock, whatever it is, it belongs to him. Do the people of Israel come to their senses? Not at all. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No. What a response. No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of this people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. So rather than listening to the warning that God has given to them through Samuel, they actually double down on their request. And again, there's this sad humor here in this interchange between Samuel and the people. They first say, hey, we want a king like the nations. And Samuel says, hey, you know what? Those kings like the nations are like they're, they're like this. Are you sure you really want a king like the nations? And like, you're wrong, Samuel. Look at the, the, the nations. Look at how happy they are. They have great kings. Give us one like them. And if they would just take a moment and look at the nations surrounding them, they would realize that Samuel was right. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And that's how our text ends. It ends kind of as a cliffhanger we'll pick up next week. And I want us to ask or to consider, what about us? Because we live in a very different cultural context than what we see here. We don't live in a time where we are under a king. Is there anything that we can learn from this passage? I mentioned that the key to understanding this passage for us this morning is to understand God's 
plan for a king and Israel's desire for a king. So let's go ahead and start with the first, with God's plan for a king. God's plan, His plan of redemption that culminates in the cross, the empty tomb, that leads to the new creation. God's plan has always involved kings. So center of God's plan is a king. Even in the garden, before there was sin, God had a plan for humanity to serve as kings and as queens over his creation. Now, the the word king is not found in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, but the idea is certainly there. Consider this at the creation of humanity in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God gives humanity this special place in his creation. He gives them his image. Unlike the rest of creation, there's something special about humanity. They're created in the image of God. And as a part of that image of God is that they are to have dominion. They are to rule. This is a kingly term. That the people, humanity, God has created them in the beginning to rule over creation, to point creation to God by ruling benevolently over his creation. And that remains a part of God's plan even after the fall, during the time of the patriarchs. God makes promises to Abraham after calling him to follow him. And he says, there will be kings that come from your offspring, from the offspring of Isaac, from the people of Israel. We see that in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 49. At the very end of the book of Genesis, Jacob pronounces this prophecy that one day a ruler will come from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, the tribes, all, until tribes come to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So even though 1 Samuel chapter 8 has a negative view of kingship, we should also recognize that kingship has always been a part of God's plan. There's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of kings. In fact, right before the people of Israel enter into the promised land, Moses stops them, gives them a list of instructions for the time when they will appoint a king. That's what we have in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 is a very important chapter for understanding 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says this, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, And you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You must not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. 
And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. These verses are incredibly important because they describe God's plan for a king. I think these verses boil down to just four observations about what God intends for the king of his people to be like. Let's work through these just briefly. First one is this, the king will be chosen by God. And because he's chosen by God, he is subservient to God. The king will be chosen by God and therefore is subservient to God. This is very clear in verse 15. Verse 15 says this, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So right here at the very beginning, it says that God is going to choose the king himself. And that implies that the king answers to God. He doesn't have full authority. He doesn't have autonomy. He's not allowed to make decisions unilaterally. He's been entrusted with his authority, yes, but he does not have the final say. He is subservient to God himself, to the true king, the king of glory. And in a way, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Because even though... Adam and Eve ruled over creation. They had dominion over creation. They were still answerable to God. They were subservient to him as God's king and queen. Next observation from Deuteronomy. The king must be a humble servant king. The king must be a humble servant king. We see all this in verse 15 as well says this, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You must not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Notice the emphasis there. The focus is on a king being one of the people, like the people. He's not of a different class. He's a brother among you. He's not a foreigner. He is your brother. This is made explicit in verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. So the king must recognize his proper place. He's not to exalt himself above the people. Instead, he is to recognize the awesome and yet terrifying responsibility that he has before God and before the people that he is to lead. And this should lead to humility. As someone who has been entrusted with so much responsibility, he must recognize that that responsibility is not to seek his own ends, but is instead to serve others, to point them to God himself, the King of glory. A third observation. The king must put his trust in God alone. The king must put his trust 
in God alone. This is the heart of verses 16 and 17. I'm going to read those for you again. Only he, may, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, self, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Here in these verses, we see that there are many things that are going to vie for the king's trust. Is he going to place his trust in military strength and the might of these horses? Will he place his trust in political alliances and collect wife after wife after wife after as a sign of all of these marriage alliances that he's made with the surrounding nations so that he can assure peace? Is he going to place his trust in silver and gold and say, you know what, if someone who is mightier or stronger than me is coming, I can just buy them off because I have a lot of wealth. Deuteronomy says no to all these things. The king who leads the people of Israel must not be excessively wealthy. He must not be known for his military supremacy. He must not have all of these political alliances formed through marriage with all of the surrounding nations because his trust must be found in God alone, the king of glory. One final observation. The king must devote his life to God's word and to God's commandments. The king has to devote his life to God's word and to God's commandments. That's the heart of verses 18 through 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." I love these verses. They are, they are some of the most astounding verses in the entire Bible because they highlight how seriously God takes his word. How seriously God takes his word. Millennia before the printing press. In this time where if you wanted a copy of a book, you had to write it out by hand, God says that the most important thing for a king to do, the first thing a king should do when they ascend to the throne is to make their own copy of the Bible. And they're not supposed to have someone else do it for them. This is so important to God that he says, no, king, I want you to take the time to write word for word the words of God on a scroll so that they sink deep into your heart. But that's not all. After that, after it's written down, God says, hey, I want you to take this copy of the law, which is probably just the book of Deuteronomy, if you're wondering. Take this copy of the law, and you have to get it approved by the priests to make sure that it's all right. To make sure that it is faithful to the actual scriptures. And then you have to read it every day of your life. 
Literacy is not very high at this point, and yet you have to take the time and the effort as a king to learn how to read so that you can read the Word of God each and every day. And all of this is so that you can be sure to fear God. All of this is done so that you can be sure to faithfully keep God's commandments. That is what a king must do. Do you see what God's plan for a king is pointing to here? It's, it's, it's simply this. God's king is meant to lead the people to the king of glory. That's what God's plan for a king is. God's king God's plan for a king is for this king to lead his people to the king of glory, to God himself. That's the type of king that God wants. That's what God expects from his king. One who ultimately points people to God's kingship, to God's sovereign rule. God's king will lead his people to the sovereign king, to the king of glory. And if Israel wants that from a king, they want a king who's going to lead them to follow God himself, then God's, God's all on board. But that's not what Israel wants from a king. Let's take a look, considering... 1 Samuel chapter 8, to see what Israel's desire for a king actually is. Chapter hints at it over and over and over again. I think there's three verses that really hammer home and make explicit Israel's desire for a king. Verse 7, 8, and 20. Again, four observations of Israel's desire for a king. I think the most important is found in verses 7 and 8. It says this, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. I think for us to grasp the weight of what God is saying here, we have to consider how has Israel's leadership worked to this point? From the very beginning, from their inception as a nation, when God leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God has always raised up specific leaders to meet his or meet the needs of his people. That's that's always the case to this point. So God raises up Moses, who is a prophet, to, to lead the people out of Egypt, but also to establish this covenant. This relationship with God is true of Joshua, this military leader who leads the people of Israel into the promised land. It's true of all of the judges to varying degrees in the book of Judges. And it's also true of Samuel here. This prophet, this priest, this judge who is now leading the people of Israel to this point, called by God to meet the needs of God's people. And God has has created this system of leadership in Israel really to describe or or to, to emphasize two things 
First, it's to show that God knows exactly what his people need. They need a prophet, he's going to send a prophet. They need a military leader, he's going to send a military leader. They need a priest, he's going to send a priest. They need judges, he's going to send judges. God knows exactly what his people need. Second, it also shows that God is going to meet his people's needs in the very best way. That God's always meeting the needs of his people. These leaders are supposed to point to God. And when Israel is asking for a king, God God sees right through their hearts. He sees exactly what they're really asking for. They're following in the footsteps of the generations that have come before them. They've gone on from the time of Egypt. They're forsaking God and his way of doing things so that they can chase after other gods. That's what he says here in verse 8. They're exchanging this, this way of utter reliance upon God to provide for them this judge, judgeship for something tangible, seen, stable, which may not be inherently wrong in itself, but for Israel in this moment, it is an act of idolatry. They're getting rid of God and replacing God with a king. That's why Israel really wants a king. That's our, our first picture of Israel's desire for a king here is Israel wants a king because they believe that God is not a good enough king for them. Why does Israel want a king? Because they don't think God is good enough as a king for them. They're sick of trusting God. They're always having to trust God to meet their needs. That's exhausting, God. So just give us a king. We're tired of waiting on you. Give us something different. Give us a king. And that king can take care of us. So they reject God because they don't think God is good enough of a king for them. Second, in verse 20, we see Israel wants a king to be like the nations. They just want to be like the nations. It says this, But there shall be a king over us so that we may also be like all the nations. You see, not only is Israel rejecting God as their king, they're also rejecting God's plan for them. God's plan for Israel is not to be like all the other nations. It's to be set apart. It's to be holy. Deuteronomy 7 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord your Lord loves you and he is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel is supposed to be wholly different. They're supposed to be set apart and yet they say, now nah, we want to fit in. We want to be like everyone else. It's working for them. I'm sure it'll work for us too. Give us a king so we can be like the nations. Next, Israel wants a king to lead them. That's what God's doing, but Israel wants a king to lead them. 
verse 20. But there shall be a king over us that our king may judge us. Again, God is providing for his people's needs. God is doing this. And yet Israel says, God, you're not doing good enough of a job. We have a better idea. Give us a king who can do the things that you have said you will do for us. Finally, Israel wants a king to deliver them, to fight their battles. Verse 20, but there shall be a king over us to go out before us and fight our battles. God's continual deliverance of the people of Israel is not good enough for Israel. Deliverance from Egypt, not good enough. Provision in the promised land, in the battles that were waged then, not good enough. Conquest of the promised land, not good enough. Time of the judges when God would raise up a judge to deliver the people of Israel, not good enough. Defeat of the Philistines that took place in the chapter right before this, not good good enough. They would trade all of these things that God has done for them over and over and over throughout their history just so that they can have a king on a noble horse waving a flag leading them into battle. God, we don't want your deliverance. We want a king. A king who will deliver us. You see Israel's heart here? God's original plan for a king was for that king to lead his people to the king of glory. Israel says, no, 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 no. we want a king who will replace the king of glory. We don't want anything to do with God. We actually want to create a system where we don't have to rely on God. Thank you, God, but we got it from here. Give us a king like the nations. And over the coming weeks, as we look at 1 Samuel, we're going to see that God gives them exactly what they want. God gives them a king, Saul, who is like the nations. It would be wrong for us to conclude that Saul is a pretty good king, just a couple of flaws, and then he stumbles across the finish line. No, from the very beginning, there's massive issues with Saul, this man who is the people's king, this king like the nations. And honestly, I think there's a little bit of application here from that, that God gives the people of Israel exactly what they want, even though it's contrary to his law, even though it's contrary to his desire. And sometimes God does that exact same thing with us. He gives us what we want, fully knowing that it is going to blow up in our faces. And he does it to teach us, sometimes in a painful way, that his way is better. When you get your way, don't just assume that it's because God is blessing you or giving his approval upon you and your life. Sometimes God gives you what you want to prove to you your great need for him. That's what he does with the people of Israel under the kingship of Saul. But that's 
not the primary takeaway from this text. This text, even though it's separated so far removed from us in context, thousands of years, 3,000 years, we don't live in a monarchy, we don't live under the old covenant, and yet there's so much that this passage has to say about our own hearts that just like the people of Israel who rejected God as king over their lives, we also are prone to do the exact same thing. And this text forces us to ask ourselves a question. It's simply this, am I rejecting God's kingship in my own life? Am I rejecting God's kingship in my own life? And just like with Israel, this can take any number of forms. Like Israel, some of us can, can choose to reject God and his kingship by, by refusing to fully trust in him and in his ability to do what he says he will do. We, we have this mindset of, I don't know if God can, can really be trusted, and so i got to have a fallback plan. i got to figure things out that's going to make the, the, the bad times easier to manage in case God doesn't come through for me. First Samuel chapter 8 says, well, that's actually a form of idolatry. It's a form of rejecting God as king. Others of us, we follow Israel in a different way. Maybe we're disillusioned with the way that God does things. Maybe we think that God hasn't been fair to us in our lives. The, the life that we've been given, we don't really like it. We, we wouldn't have signed up for this. And God, you're not being fair to me. And so I'm going to go find someone or something that will treat me better. So we reject God as king over our lives and we, we run after whatever it is. Say, God, I don't want you to be my king. Others of us, we're like Israel and we want to just conform. We want to fit in. Or maybe it's not conformity, maybe it's just pragmatism. We look at everyone else and what they're doing and they're, they're not following Jesus and, and yet they got a pretty good life. And it's working for them, and so maybe it'll work for me too. And so I'm going to go ahead and just go this way that everyone else is going, not because God is, says that it's okay, but you know what? Forget God because this is working out, and I'm going to stick with that. This can happen in any number of ways in our lives that we reject God as king over us. And we're just like Israel. Am I rejecting God's kingship in my own life? Or am I walking the hard path of faith? Faith that oftentimes doesn't come with sight. The hard path of trusting God and obeying Him even when it doesn't make sense. See, here's the, the beautiful thing of this passage. Israel had this desire, and it was, it was a desire for evil, rejecting God, and yet God, 
intended that and used it for good. In the big story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a key chapter because in this moment, it's the introduction of the kingship to Israel, and that means that we're seeing this other part of God's plan to save humanity. It finally gets revealed to us. God's plan to save the nations, to save creation from the curse of sin, God reveals a little bit more of his plan. The introduction of a kingship leads to the introduction of messianic prophecies, to this longing for, this looking toward a king who will one day make all things right. It points us to Jesus. And this moment is is massive. And God uses what Israel intended for evil, and he uses it for good. And he does it through his chosen king. A king who, like in the vein of Deuteronomy 17, will lead his people to the king of glory. Isn't that what Jesus does? He makes a way for the people of God to come into the presence of God once again. This chosen king, this king who willingly submits himself to God, this king who is humble, this king who is a servant, this king who puts his trust in God alone, even in the garden, even when things look dark and he wonders where God is. He puts his trust in God alone. This king whose life is devoted to God's word and to faithfully, utterly, fully keeping the commandments of God. We need a king. Not a king who will replace the king of glory, but a king who will lead us to him. We need King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text that ultimately points us to you. It points us to our great need for you. It points us to how you fulfill all of our needs, how you take care of us and provide for us, give us exactly what we want and need. God, we ask for forgiveness for the ways and the times where we have rejected you as king over our lives, where we've chased after things to replace you. Help us, God, to be a people who walk by faith, following our King in worship of the true King of glory. It's in our King's name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.